Well, last week we started by looking at some of these sayings that we often think are in the Bible, but are not actually in the Bible. Things like, God will never give you more than you can handle, which we're going to talk about uh, next week on Mother's Day. <laughs> or, uh, the safest place is at the center of God's will. Ever heard that one before? Not in the Bible. Now, the point of this is not, as we've said, is not to throw shade or belittle anyone who's grown up assuming these were in the good book, or if you've ever told someone, God helps those who help themselves, the point is not to shame you, because I've certainly done that before, especially with the saying that we're looking at today. Of all these sayings, this is the one I've heard the most and said the most. I read about uh, one woman who felt so strongly about this expression that she had it tattooed on her arm, hate the sin Love the sinner. And just to let you know, two writers in particular who've been helpful, uh, super helpful in providing context here, Adam Hamilton and John Orberg. So if this isn't in the Bible, hate the sin, love the sinner, where did it come from? Well, the first uh, two sources, the first of which is St. Augustine, the fourth century uh, bishop in North Africa who was writing a letter to nuns asking them to remain chaste. And in that letter, he called them to have a love for mankind and a hatred for sins. The second and maybe more uh, well-known origin of this goes back to the year 1929 when Gandhi said, he wrote, hate the sin and not the sinner, which is a great line. But then when you go back and look at the autobiography where Gandhi wrote this, it has a slightly different flavor. Here's what he wrote. Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. And I think that's a helpful launching point into what we're going to look at today. Gandhi, who was not a Christian, but was certainly an admirer of Jesus, Gandhi makes the point that it is so hard, maybe even impossible, to see someone first and foremost as a sinner and to focus on hating their sin without that leading to some level of judgment or even condemnation of that person. So here's what I thought we could do. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Two parts to this saying, we'll deal with the first one, and then we're going to get to the second. So first, hate the sin. What does the Bible have to say about sin? Well, starting in the Old Testament, there are a number of different words that are used that we translate with this word sin. One of these words means to stray off the path. It's like when you're going somewhere and you make one wrong term and so, turn, and sometimes at first it seems like you're really not that far off, but the longer you keep going down that wrong path, the more lost you become. As anyone who's seen Dumb and Dumber knows, right? Thought the Rocky Mountains would be a little rockier here. <laughs> Another word for sin. I got more response at the 11 o'clock than I did at the 9.30, I promise. Another word for sin in the scriptures means to miss the mark, like an archer who misses his target. That's why when you go to summer camp, they don't let the kids and the campers play around behind the archery targets because missing the mark can hurt somebody. And the same is true with sin. Another uh, word in the Bible is trespass. To sin is to trespass. It's to cross, to violate a boundary. It's seeing a line that I know I shouldn't cross, but I do it anyway. There was a priest who parked his car in a a no-parking zone because he was running late, couldn't find a spot, and so he wrote out a note and put it under his windshield wiper. It said, I've circled the block 10 times. If I didn't park here, I'd miss the funeral. Forgive us our trespasses. 
When he got back, he found a ticket from the police officer under the same windshield wiper. It said, I've circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. Lead me not into temptation. <laughs> now, sin is not just about crossing a line or straying off the path or missing the mark. In the Bible, sin is also not doing something that we know we should have done. This is sometimes called sins of omission. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans uh, in one of the, the hardest verses to memorize because it's kind of a tongue twister. For I do not do the good I want to do, that's omission, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. It's turning my back on that act of love that I know that I should do. It's withholding kindness. It's walking past and over suffering without any response of mercy. Uh, later in uh, Romans, Paul says something that gets about as close to actually to hate the sin as anything else in the Bible, and it's connected to this. He says, he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And I want us to leave that up there for just a moment because here's the thing. Paul is not saying here that we're supposed to hate the evil in someone else's life. Right? In the context of Romans 12 and of that verse, what he's saying is, I should hate the evil within me, my own sin, my own coldness or greed or self-centeredness, anything that would keep me from love. Hate the evil in your own heart that keeps you from loving. What else do we know about sin? Again, from Romans, a lot of Romans today. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who sins? Everybody. Nobody's left out. Even the professionals, the pastors, the elders and deacons who are going to serve you communion a little bit later. We're all sinners. A guy I know was uh, driving to a wedding, and on his way there, he got cut off in traffic, and he was so mad that he actually uh, drove back alongside the car that had cut him off and rolled down his window, and he made a hand signal to the driver. Well, then when he got to the wedding, and he was a groomsman in the wedding, he realized the driver of that car was the minister. Okay? <laughs> That is not a story about me, I promise, just to be clear. <laughs> Who sins? Everybody. Another question, how much sin is too much? Like, if we're really honest, we might be tempted to ask the question this way. Is there an acceptable level of sin where I'm limiting it in my life and I'm really going to be okay in terms of my sin quotient and God's not going to smite me or punish me and I'm going to go on living as if it's all good? What's the acceptable sin threshold? Has no one else ever thought about that? Well, here we need to understand that the problem of sin, and this is another way that the scriptures describe sin, is in terms of impurity. Well, how much of an impure substance does it take to make something pure impure? Just a drop, a single speck. Right? Anyone who's ever found a hair in their enchiladas and sent them back knows this. It just takes one hair. I'm not eating that. It's impure. This is R.C. Sproul. He says the smallest sin is an affront to the, to the holiness of God and brings down the thundering wrath of God upon us. One more thing that the scriptures say about sin. It is so utterly destructive. For the wages of sin is death. Sin kills. Sin destroys 
And we see this played out in so many ways in, in the Bible. Think about the life of King David, a man chosen by God after God's heart. One day, he stays home from battle, gives in to temptation, sleeps with another man's wife, and the consequence of that sin leads to a level of destruction and the loss of life and the severing of family and the splitting of an entire kingdom. That's the consequence of sin. Sometimes in church circles, our big concern is about getting punished for our sins. But as devastating as the punishment might be, it is also what the sin itself does to you. How it empties you and splits your soul and leaves you enslaved and it wrecks relationships and it hurts people. You know, part of my role as a pastor, it's maybe the most sacred part of this job. And it is also the most painful the conversations and just the walking with people through the trenches. And I see what sin does to wreck lives. I've seen how sin enslaves people and traps them in ways that they never imagined when they first started inching down that path. I've seen how greed can hollow out a person's life and dull their senses to the pain and the need and the suffering in this world. I've seen what pride can do to hardened hearts, my own included. I've seen how gossipy words and Belittling offhand comments can shred a person down to nothing. I've seen how coldness and distance and the withholding of love between a mom and a dad can leave this wound in the lives of their kids who spend the rest of their days trying to find that belovedness in all the wrong places. I've seen what happens when husbands, through their words and their controlling and even through physical force, abuse their wives and then promise it'll never happen again, and then they do it again. I've seen what happens when a few harmless lies end up taking on a life of their own and they snowball into a double life of deception that takes down careers and reputations where the abuse of power in the workplace casts this shadow over people trying to use their God-given gifts. I've seen parents idolize success and achievement and almost try to relive their own unfulfilled dreams by putting unthinkable pressures on their kids. I've seen how what began with a second look and a lustful gaze and lustful thoughts left unchecked and addiction to porn, how it can just destroy a marriage and break apart families. I have grieved with families and buried people way too young who lost that battle to addiction. You see, the place where this needs to begin, hate the sin, hate the sin, is not out there. It's that we need to hate the sin that is within us and the evil that's in me, and to hate it enough to know that I dare not go another day without bringing it to Jesus and asking for forgiveness. God, heal the sin within me, in me. So that's the first part. What about the second? Can we get to the good part of the saying? How about love the sinner? I mean, that sounds like something Jesus would have said. He spends a lot of time with sinners. In fact, one of the things he was known for, they started calling him a friend of sinners. It was meant as an insult, but Jesus embraced it like as a badge of honor. And while he certainly loves sinners, this is real important. Jesus never actually said, love the sinner. What he did say, and I think there's a difference, is love your neighbor and love your enemy and love one another. But he never says love the sinner. Why? Well, part of this, he doesn't have to if you're called to love your neighbor because then you've got your bases covered because all your neighbors are sinners. But I think the bigger issue here, and Gandhi was trying to get at this, is that for Jesus to say love the sinner, it is almost as if we would begin to look at, at people more as sinners than as neighbors. 
And because of the way we're wired, that will lead us down a road toward judging. This is from Adam Hamilton. He writes, If I love you more as a sinner than as a neighbor, then I am bound to focus more on your sin. I will start looking for all the things that are wrong with you, and possibly without intending it, I will begin thinking of our relationship in terms of, you are a sinner, but I graciously choose to love you anyway, which then opens the door wide to pride and self-righteousness, and they begin edging their way into our hearts. Another problem with this word sinner is that it's almost always used for someone other than me. So often it's those people or that group or that kind of person or that politician, right? Anybody but me. Because sin is so much easier to spot in someone else's life. It's part of being human. And Jesus knows this about us. This tendency we have to see it in other people before we see it in ourselves. That's why in his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends a little time on this. And he uses this awkwardly graphic word picture that I will notice the speck of sawdust way over there in Greg Hobbs' eye. Even though he's all the way on the other side of the chancel and I'm nearsighted, but I can, I mean, I can just see that speck of sawdust in his eye, and for whatever reason, I have no idea there is a giant two-by-four in my own eye. It's this absurd picture, and it points to the absurdity of what we do when we judge other people. Like, I got way too much sin and mess and evil, plank after plank after plank to deal with in my life to be focused on someone else's life and sin. So maybe Jesus might have said something like, love your neighbor and deal with the sin in your own life first, otherwise you're just going to be a hypocrite. I was reading the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and I came across a section that I want to share with you. Uh, Screwtape is a senior devil who's writing to a junior devil about how to best distract Christians from knowing and loving God. And here's what Screwtape writes. My dear Wormwood, that's the junior devil, I note with grave displeasure that your patient, this is the man that the junior devil is trying to tempt, he has become a Christian. There is no need to despair, though. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, that's God's kingdom, and are now with us. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. When he goes inside the church, he sees the local grocer with a rather, rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. Apparently the devils didn't like ushers. <laughs> and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. Apparently the devils didn't like hymnals either. When he gets to his pew... And looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Your patient, thanks to our father below, that's God, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. It's like it's in our nature to see and even obsess over the quirks and flaws and, yes, the sin in other people without recognizing and then bringing to God the reality of my own sin so that he can heal me. In fact, Screwtape, the senior devil, goes on to uh, say to Wormwood, this is about the new Christian. He says, he has not been anything like long enough with the enemy, with God, to have any real humility yet. 
What he says, even on his knees about his own sinfulness, it's all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. Our enemy, the devil, wants nothing more than for us to keep on obsessing over the sin out there or in that pew or that transept or over there, all the while our prayers of confession are just empty parrot talk. And I know, I know there is so much sin in here and out there and in our community and in our city and in our country and in our culture right now. There is greed and godlessness and idolatry and the trampling of virtue and murdering the innocent and racism and war and the downward spiral around sexual immorality. And I know that for so many of you, it just tears you apart to see it all unraveling. But how much sin is in my heart right now? Right here, the judgment and apathy and thought patterns of pride and the smug self-righteousness and the withholding of love and the neglecting the poor and trying to find happiness in all the empty things and it goes on and on and on and then there's the stuff that I don't even, I can't even see yet and only God knows and only God can heal. So can we just start, can we be a church that begins here? That the battle against sin begins inside of us and it keeps us from all that God has called us to in this broken world. God, have mercy on me, me, me. I'm the sinner. And I was thinking about this moment and about this table and how we have this cross here as a reminder that when we come to the table, part of what we're doing is we're bringing our sins to the cross and we're laying them down at the foot of the cross. And the thing about that is, I'm not coming to this table, I'm not coming to this cross with someone else's sin. I'm coming with my own, because I got more than I could ever handle in a lifetime, and only God can take it away, only God can heal it, only God can forgive it. So let's come to this table to receive the forgiveness, the freedom, the new life that only comes from the one who was crucified for us. So Jesus, we ask that you would do that in our lives and once again as we break this bread and as we drink from this cup, even as we take these moments to reflect on your life, death, and resurrection. In Jesus' name.